Hello there, this is the Psychology Report, and I'm Dr. Alan Hedberg. Uh, today I'd like to address an issue of money, both the uh, presence of money and the absence of money. Uh, to do so, I'd like to put into uh, context and perspective uh, two scenarios. One is at the rich end, or the wealthy end, and the other one is at the poverty end of the continuum. We're going to look at wealth. You turn to Andrew Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie is probably the third or the fourth most wealthy person that ever lived in America and made his money in America. In his day, he came to about a wealth level of $300 billion in today's money. Well, you see, we are talking about wealth. How can a man accumulate $300 billion in the course of his working career? And how can we... Uh, see that he uses it wisely, or how he used his money wisely. Well, let's take a look at the life of Andrew Carnegie for a few minutes. He was not a member of any church at all, yet he gave 7,000 pipe organs to churches throughout the country. He gave away money easily. Of his billions of dollars, he gave $365 million in his day that would equal about $11 billion in today's money value. That's what he gave away. That was his charitable giving, if you will. $11.2 billion in today's economy on an income of about $300 billion. Now, what about his um, taxes and uh, other kind of income that he generated? Well, he worked. He started working for about $0.02 cents an hour. That was in his day. If that were equivalent for today's market, that'd be about $1.40 is what he worked at on an hourly basis and made $400 million. Um, so, you see, he was a rich man. He only went to school four years of his entire life. He wrote eight books. Books on travel, on biography, on essays, and on economics, if you will. He gave away money, $60 million dollars, that would be equal to about a million, about a billion and a half, a billion and a half in today's economy. So let's say he gave a billion and a half dollars just to local public libraries. And he gave $2.4 billion in today's money for the advancement of education, universities and other kind of educational institutions. He was of the belief, he believed that you should give away all your money before you die. And that there should be a, a system, a plan by which you give away your money prior to your death, so that when you die, you die as a broke person, as a person of no income. He even ran an ad in the newspaper, creating a contest for people to write him a letter indicating how he should give away his money before he died, and that he would pick the best one and follow it, and then give an award to that person. He had a little sense of humor, if you think of it you know, in that sense. So here's a wealthy man. How he made his money, how he managed it, and how he gave it away. And the thing that strikes me is I look at his giving, his charitable giving. He did not give to poverty. He did not give to get people out of poverty. He gave to causes and to charitable organizations that would enrich the quality of life of people. He was interested in people living a quality life and that a quality life would be attractive, and people would work, and people would strive to improve themselves to have a quality of life. 
that he was promoting, which is an interesting concept for our government. Not to give people money just because they're in poverty, because that just encourages more poverty. But to give people money when they enrich themselves and they live at a higher quality of life. That's his model. And not only for the private factor, for us individuals privately, but for the government. That there be an incentive, if you will, to live a high quality life and to strive to improve your life to a high quality of living. About two years ago, there was a uh, commission formed by two organizations. One is the Brookings Institute, which is a liberal democratic organization, and a right-wing organization, the American Enterprise Institute, a Republican, if you will. It took people from those two organizations, set them down at a table over and over again, and met for a lengthy period of time trying to discover how to address this issue of poverty in our country. Why do we have poverty and what, what we can do about it, if you will? Well, one of the things that they discovered when they compared time, going back from 1964 to 2014, okay, 1964 to 2014, the poverty rate only improved by one-tenth of a percent. The poverty rate in 64 was 14.8. The poverty rate in 2014 was 14.7. So if you will, over the last, whatever, 50 or some years, our poverty rate has maintained itself at about 14, let's say 15% of the population. We haven't done better, we haven't done worse. So that seems to be the level of poverty that exists in our country that's pretty stable, and we're just going to have to live with that. That's something we either have to live with or accept or just recognize that that's the poverty level and learn to deal with people who are within that poverty range and see what we can do about their life and their quality of life. According to Carnegie, let's improve the lifestyle of the people who are in poverty. And maybe that will drive them out of poverty into a higher level of living and quality of life. So this commission, as they met, came up with a number of observations. They did advocate a higher minimum wage. And they even went up to $15, if you will. So they did recommend a higher minimum wage for people in that poverty ranking so that they could work and improve themselves. So that was one recommendation that they had. The other was is to guarantee some kind of a minimum wage in the sense of if you worked and your employer paid you less than $15 an hour, let's say, or $10 an hour, that the government would subsidize the employer to pay you a little extra, to pay you a little more so that your income would be at a higher level. So whether you do it through a minimum wage system or you do it through a government subsidy program in which you have to work, and if you don't get paid a certain amount of money, the government would subsidize that to bring it to a particular level. So both of them are based upon the assumption that if you're in poverty, you must work to get out of poverty. And the government had a plan of that nature, or they recommended a plan of that nature to the government to help people. The other thing that they recommended is that two-year colleges and four-year colleges would be evaluated annually for the number of graduates that they have. Now, that is the number of students that enrolled initially, and then how many graduated. To see that our colleges are actually graduating people rather than just getting people stuck 
in the college system and going nowhere. But they went beyond that and then said that we'd evaluate the colleges relative to the employment rate of the graduates. That is, if you graduated from a particular college, what would be the employment rate of the students of that college that graduated in that year? In other words, are the colleges not only educating, but are the colleges educating in such a way that there's an encouragement to work, to get employment, and to maintain employment? Are they teaching employable skills? Are they teaching uh, hireable skills? Are they teaching people to not only get a job, but to maintain a job? Are they teaching people to not only get a job, maintain a job, but also advance in that job so that they improve themselves? So colleges would have to be on the hook. They'd have to really demonstrate that they educate, they teach hireable skills, they graduate students, and that they uh, follow up and make sure that those students not only are hired, but advance in their jobs and advance in their careers. One of the other things they looked at was this idea of um, single-family homes. Mothers and children in a single-family home, a mother and a child or children, earn substantially less, substantially less, than mothers and children living in a two-family home with a father present. There's an enormous difference between those two homes in the level of income and the level of quality of life of those individuals. If you lived in a stable home of two parents and children, you had a much better chance to not only be stable, that is, from day to day, live a fairly stable life, but your children would tend to do well in school and tend to do well socially and minimize their involvement in criminal activity and drug activity, etc. The single parent family, the mother and children, the mother and child, is at risk in our society and draining on our resources because they can't because she can't work or she can't work at a very substantial level. So they remain in poverty and will remain in poverty perhaps forever. So they wanted to address that issue of the single family home and making sure that as much as possible there would be an encouragement for marriage, there would be encouragement for stability of families, be encouragement for stability of marriages so that the children in those homes would have a substantial basis for stability to make an education of themselves and earn an income and earn a career so they go on at a higher level than they were raised in on the basis of their mother being unemployed. The other thing they found is that low-income men continue to be low-income. That is, if a man is low-income, chances are five or ten years from now he'll be low-income also, continue to be low-income. And that the rate of employment and the rate of income level for men doesn't go up, but it does for women. Single women tend to make more money over time in fact, their income increases about 35% over time. Where single men, their income remains the same or drops about 2 or 3%. So if you're going to marry some guy for the sake of money, if he's poor, if he's in poverty, he's going to be in poverty, and that's a poor choice. Don't do it, you say. You'd be better off being a single woman and earning money yourself because your income is going to increase you know, over time. So there we are. We have a number of different kinds of ways that uh, poverty can be addressed according to th this particular study group. And uh, we want to make sure that we can uh, uh, do that as a, uh, a way of, of uh, earning 
as much income as we can and earning as much uh, chance of in succeeding and living a stable life and living a life of, of uh, employment and a life of uh, enrichment and success and achievement and career orientation, you see? In other words, single mothers and children don't make it in our society if they marry a poor man. But she's still going to have a tough time even if she remains single. It just doesn't make sense. So we need to focus on how to create and help marriages be formed and stabilize and maintain themselves and how to help children live in a home where there is hope and where there is some promise of improvement over time. Well, this has been the Psychology Report. And we've been talking today about poverty and wealth and uh, money matters. And um, I certainly would recommend my book to you, Doctor, Teach Me to Parent. You get that on my website. It's booksbyhedberg.com. And in that website, I have a book, Doctor, Teach Me to Parent. And in there, I talk about managing money in the home and earning money within the home so that you don't live in poverty. So there are some areas of advice within the home that would help you on this topic. And how to just be an effective parent. How to be a, a strong and effective parent in the home. Whether you're a single parent or whether you're a two-parent home or whatever. But uh, parenting is a tough one. So the book is there, Doctor, Teach Me to Parent. doesn't imply that you don't know how, but you can be a better parent. Intentional parent. So I recommend it. Okay, bye for now.